Why don't you all turn to Luke chapter 22 um, and stand with me. Luke chapter 22, um, starting in verse 34. If you've been with us uh, from the start of the year, we've spent time in the gospel of Luke. Uh, and we haven't quite walked through it. Uh, we've more danced around in it. So uh, we've seen lots of good stuff. And as we're preparing to find ourselves in Easter um, next week, we're going to spend our time tracking through the last week of Christ's uh, death. As we talk about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one thing that's important to note is that Uh, We serve a God who, yes, he did live and he taught us, and there's lots of good things that he taught us, but he also died and was crucified. That's such a big deal. The Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters of the book describe three and a half years of Christ's life. A third of the book describes the last week of his life. So this week, a third of the book is aimed at trying to help us see how big of a deal this is. So this week and next week, a, a, a good thing for you to do this week is maybe go through all four of the Gospels and read the crucifixion accounts and be reminded of what Christ had done for us. Wednesday night, Bob's going to lead us through hearing about the crucifixion from a, um, a medical and contextual perspective so that we can really see uh, the agony that Christ went through for us. So we would encourage you to be there on Wednesday. My introduction to this text has already gone too long. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 34, or starting in verse 24, and it reads like this. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times or until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you remind us that we are nothing without you? Uh, Would we rejoice in not that Statement is not one of condemnation. It's meant to be a statement of comfort because although we are nothing without you, we have you, Father. So we pray that you would make us full in you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your seat. (laughs) 
William Shakespeare says, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Uh, I've lived my life surrounded by greatness. Um, No, I think of my mom and my dad. I think of my dad who uh, came to the U.S. about 45 years ago and started school at the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. And while working a full-time job, finished his undergraduate degree in two and a half years with honors. Then my mom, while she was raising five kids, working full-time, decided that was not enough and she would go back to school and get a doctorate. My sister was an Olympic-level thrower. Um, You go to Texas A&M right now in the track, and there's a big picture of her on the billboard with all these throws. A cousin in the NFL, countless other friends that have done great things. My life, I've been surrounded by all these pictures of greatness. And do you know what it does inside of me? I think the same thing that it does inside of all of us. It bursts this thing inside of us. We want greatness. We share the desire to be great. And let me tell you this. Uh, the desire for greatness is not a bad thing. It is a human thing. It's part of who we are, whether you're a parent, whether you're, you are your, uh comedian, whether you play sports, regardless of what you do, all of us want to be great. Nobody wants to be mediocre. It's even a desire that's affirmed in the Bible that when God tells us to do all of our work as unto the Lord, I think he means that he actually wants us to do good work. There is nothing godly or mature about mediocrity. We want greatness. It's ingrained inside of us. And the world that we live in is obsessed with the desire for greatness. And so what they do is they go right to the directions. How to be great. Magazines. Bookshelves. Social media. Website. Seminars. Workshops. All of these things flood our desk with how it is that we can be great, and then all of those things use their platforms to reward or to show us how greatness is rewarded, making it appealing. So greatness in our world is rewarded with fame, with money, with platforms, in order to make it a desirable thing for us. Greatness is already... um, instinctual inside of us, but our world kind of holds out all of these incentives so that you and I pursue greatness. But let me tell you, just because a pursuit is right doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Just because a pursuit is instinctual, it doesn't mean that it's innocent. The road or the pathway to greatness is littered with all kinds of landmines that will sidetrack us. Every um, behind-the-scenes, a VH1, a story of like uh, New Edition, a Boys to Men, all those biopics are uh, full of people 
who achieved this sense of greatness. They aimed high, they had these high standards, but their lives were full of such low moments. And after they achieved greatness, that greatness was not sustained, it nosedived. And that just shows you and I that even this desire and this pursuit that we have for greatness is corruptible and it is corrupted. The corruption takes place even in our desire to get ahead. I think when our world holds out a picture of greatness meant to draw us in, and you and I find ourselves in a place where we look at what somebody has, uh, when somebody has what we want, what takes place inside of us, like Ecclesiastes 4 says, is that much of the work that takes place in this world is motivated by envy. We see what somebody else has, where they are, and we want that, and so we may work hard, and we may work with intent. Integrity. The problem is, in envying people and wanting to get to a place of status, we view people not as image bearers of God, but we view people as steps that I have to climb. C.S. Lewis is going to say this, that uh, with you and I, this desire for greatness and achievement is in our hearts and it's so corruptible that it's not just enough for us to be rich. We have to be richer than the next person. It's not just enough for us to be smart. We have to be smarter. It's not just enough for us to be beautiful. We have to be beautifuler than the next person. (laughs) And what takes place is that it isolates us from the people that God had placed to help us. So instead of celebrating and rejoicing in the many gifts that we have, we're comparing and competing with them, rejoicing when they fall and we can climb to the top. It makes us view people in terms of superiority and inferiority. It's not just corrupted in our desire to get ahead. We see this desire for greatness is even corrupted once we've got ahead. That once we get ahead, once we get the thing that we hope for, once we climb the ladder and get the status and the success that we hope for, it does a few things for us. One, uh, it puts us at a place where we have an inflated view of ourselves. We view the things that are on our plate as more important as the things that are on the next person's plate. So it's easy for us to feel like we're too busy to do the ordinary things that God has called us all to do. Have you noticed how when you're aiming for something, for some goal, for some status, for some platform, how much of an inconvenience Christian service is? It gets in the way of all the things that we're trying to do and we find ourselves too busy. And more than that, we find ourselves insulted that somebody would even come and interject their needs on my pathway to get what I want. The desire for greatness is inside of us. Jesus doesn't even go so far as to condemn the desire for greatness. What he does do is he corrects our first steps on the journey. And that's what we're going to spend our time on. On the road towards greatness, on the pursuit 
of greatness that we all have that's inside of us, that's affirmed in God's word, what are our first steps? Because your first steps are the most important. Back before everybody had a GPS on their phone, uh, in order to know how to get somewhere, you had to do this thing called ask for directions. Um, And after you asked for directions, uh, you know, when folks would leave my house and they say, hey, we're getting ready to go back home. And now I'd tell them, hey, you turn right here, you turn left here. I'd stand outside and I'd wait until they made that first turn. Because if they made the wrong first turn, they're not going to see any of the landmarks that I told them. And they can go left, go right, work hard and do this. But they're not going to get to the right place. So what Jesus does here is he's saying, I'm tired of being ignored in this conversation of greatness. Let me come in and talk about these first steps. So Luke chapter 22, it's the last week of Christ's life. And here's what we see. Here's how self-absorbed you and I can be. We'll start in verse 23 to set a little bit of the context, and it's this. Jesus is in this room with the disciples the night before he dies. They're taking the Last Supper, and Jesus, in explicit fashion, he's told them that, they, that he will die, but in explicit fashion, what he does is he tells them, I am going to die. It's not going to come as a surprise. I'm not going to be blindsided. And he even goes a step further and says, it's not even going to be from somebody outside that's going to get me. I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to go to the cross because one of y'all is going to betray me. Think of the agony. He's sitting with 12 men that he spent years with and he says, I'm going to die and one of y'all is going to betray me. And look at verse 23. It says this. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Jesus says, I am going to die. I am going to be hung on a cross because somebody betrayed me. And what they say is, Jesus, that's great. Which one of us is it? They're self-centered and self-absorbed and they start to argue. Oh, I think it's Peter. You remember that one time Peter walked and then he sank? I think that's foreshadowing of what he did. Now, nah, man, I think it's Thomas, man. You know, Thomas be doubting all the time. We got to prove to him all this. Now, nah, I think it's Judas. Judas holds all of the money, but Judas always has on nice sandals, nice fresh. And so people start to point out all of these things that are wrong and they argue. They ignore Jesus And start to talk about which one of them is the worst. And if you think that I'm making too much of this point, look at the next verse. Do you know the only thing that we do better than pointing out flaws in somebody else? It's pointing out our achievements. Look here at the next verse, 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Jesus hasn't died yet. He's still in the room and they're already fighting over who's going to take his place as the line leader. And then what they start to do is they start to compete and talk about who's going to be the greatest. Not realizing that the only way that they can actually have this conversation is if they ignore Jesus and take him out. Uh, This past week I was playing ball with some guys at the gym on, on, on a Tuesday. It was five of us. Um. And as we start playing, I'm getting buckets. 
And I just think to myself, you know, I think to myself, um, I'm the best ball player in this gym. <laughs> right before I lose in the game of the 21, that's what I thought to myself. But then as I read this text, I, I was like, oh, well, I'm the best ball player in this gym. But if I bring in all the ball players across time, then I don't make that list. The only way that these guys can have a conversation about greatness and whose worth really means something is if they ignore Jesus and take him out of the picture. And this is what they do. They're having a conversation about greatness and they don't consider Jesus's perspective at all. And they compare themselves with one another. Do you see how senseless this is? When I was in elementary school, we used to play this game called Big Bank, Little Bank. Did y'all ever play that? Uh, well, back then, you know, as fifth graders, we would unvelcro our X-Men wallets and show who has the, the most money. The person that has the most money takes the money of the person that had the least amount of money. It's terrible, right? Uh, listen, listen. <laughs> Uh, That's how I know our church is diverse. There's some folks in here like, yeah, I used to kill at that game. Folks are like, this is awful. Um, But what I found out, though, uh, in hindsight, I look and and I think, um, that's a terrible game for fifth graders to play. Do you know why? Because in Sugar Land, Texas, in 1995, child labor laws were in full effect and none of us had jobs. All of the money was our mom's money. And we were trying to measure our status based on not anything that we've earned, but something that we've been given. As the disciples try to talk about their greatness, their intellect, ah, that's a gift from God. Their ability to heal people, gift from God. Their ability to cast out the gift from God. Any, what do you have that God didn't give you? Nothing. So what do you have to set yourself up against anybody else? Nothing. You have nothing but was all, but what was already given to you. You're playing big bank, little bank with somebody else's money. Jesus lets them go on for a bit. And here's what I love about Jesus. The world that we live in is set up to have conversations and ignore what Jesus has said about it. They either leave him out, don't consult him at all, or they try to reinterpret what he says. But here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus is an interrupter. He's going to interject himself into the conversation. Look here at verse 25. It says this, but he said to them, I want to start, stop with those first words before we even dive into what he says and just ask you, um, how often in conversations or arguments that you have or desires for what takes place next in your life, how often do you let Jesus interrupt you? How often are you already intent on what you're going to do, what you think, and Jesus has no say, he, he has no involvement in the conversation? You would do very well to surround yourself with people 
that are always going to insert the words, but what does God have to say about it? Not just what does God have to say about it, but you would do well to surround yourself with people who are not just going to introduce what God has to say, but they're going to continue to repeat it. What I love about Jesus is this is not the first time that he's talked to them about greatness. In Luke 9, he has this exact same conversation with him. In Mark 10, on his way to Jerusalem, James and John start to talk about who's great. And he has the same convo with them about greatness. So this is at least the third time that he's going to say the same thing. And if anything, that should remind you and I that sometimes as people, it just takes us a while to get it, y'all. Sometimes we have to just say the same. We cannot be afraid of repeating the same things over and over. Nor can we be mad and upset when we say the same things and it feels like they just don't get it. That's how God's taught us. That's how we teach everybody else. Repetition. This is what Christ does. Eventually, it will sink in. Keep going. And here's what Christ does. He starts off and he says this. First, he gives him a piece of instruction. The kings of Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have called, or have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. The way that that's worded is a little confusing, so let me explain what he's trying to get at. He's trying to contrast the way that our world views and treats greatness and the way that Christians are to view and treat greatness. So he'll say this, the kings of the Gentiles, the people in our world that have a position of power, what they'll do is, he said, they'll lord it over folks so they really use their power to be served, but then at the end of the day they take on the title of, but I'm here for the people. And he's saying, it's ironic that these public servants really take more than they give. And, 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 and we've seen this in our world. Just a few months ago or a few weeks ago, um, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, government agency that is set to deal with housing problems in the United States it came to light that they spent $31,000 on a dining room set for an office. So folks are in an uproar and they say, what, what y'all are supposed to serve us? And there are communities here where families don't make that much in a year and y'all spend it on a dining room set? And what Christ is saying, nah, this is how our world does. Not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. We've all seen or heard of churches that are full of pastors who, at the expense of a starving community inside of the church, are driving luxury vehicles. Seen it in our own homes where our parents call us from playing outside to come and get them the remote control. That's right on the couch. He's saying this is, this is how things go in the world that we live in. Those that have power use their strength to receive and not to serve. But Christ says, no, no, listen. 
It's not to be like that among you. We use our platforms to serve. The megaphone that we have, if we have any type of platform, God has granted that to us to speak out for those that don't have a platform. Any type of influence, God has called us to use that, not to receive praise, but to go on and help folks. And Jesus, here's what I love about him, uh, he doesn't just stop with a philosophy. He doesn't just stop with a definition. He gives us a picture, an illustration. Look here at 27, he says this, look, for who's greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? He's like, y'all know this. The greater one is not the one that runs around trying to make all the food. That's the servant. And look at what he says. He says, yo, look at me. But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, this is not just something that I'm spouting off. This is the way that I've lived my life and y'all can see it. Jesus, Jesus lived his life as an open book so that you and I wouldn't just have to hear the words that he says and believes it, but that we would have a backdrop of, no, 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 this man really did it. He really washed the feet of Judas who was getting ready to soil his hands with Jesus' blood. He really served these people that he knew would fail. Jesus' solution is not just to hear his words, but to look at him. And I just want to say this really, really quick, because sometimes when we talk about the ordinary spiritual things that God has provided for us to be like him, we neglect their importance, not in the way that we speak, but in the way that we act. Something as ordinary and common as Bible study. Do you know the usefulness of studying your Bible and reading an entire book that was meant to point to Jesus? Is that you and I see that he's not calling us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. It's so that you and I get a chance to see and look at how he did life and study him. Two of the most important questions that you can ask as you look at Jesus in the scriptures is this. What does this passage teach me about God? And how is this different from the way that our world would do things? Here's one that you can read this week. John chapter 3 through 5. Two, three chapters but here's what takes place in John 3 through 5. Jesus comes on the scene, just turned water into wine. His fame is starting to build up. John the Baptist says, yo, if y'all think that I'm something special, I can't even tie this man's sandals. So then what takes place is in John 3 and in John 4, you have two people at the top of the food chain. Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes and approaches Jesus. A Roman official comes and approaches Jesus. Both of these men who seem to have it all come and approach him. So you see this status that he has. But do you know what else you see in John 3 through 5? What Jesus will use his status for is not to be served by a group of folks. But in John 4, 
he approaches a woman at the well at high noon. You don't fetch water at high noon. It's hot at noon. This lady was an outcast. A woman who the whole town knew got around. And she would rather fetch water in the brutal heat of the day than go there and see a whole bunch of women throw shade at her. And do you know what Jesus does? He goes and approaches her and sits and talks to her. He serves her. Then in John 5, Jesus goes to a man that has been an invalid, couldn't walk on a mat for 38 years. It's likely that this man was sitting in his feces and excrement. Jesus goes and approaches this man. So what he's not saying is, look at me in the way that I served you all dinner. He's saying, look at me in the way that I lived my life. One of the best things that you and I can do, one of the most fruitful things that you and I can do is get up every morning knowing we have this instinct in our heart to pursue greatness on some path and look at the way that Jesus did it. And then at that point, you have to agree or disagree. Is this the right way? Should I follow? Or is this foolish? Should I not? But you have to look at Jesus. You have to bring him into the conversation. As we talk about our Christianity, if your Christianity doesn't look anything like what I just described as Jesus' interaction in John 3 through 5, I just want you to know That's the place that he is leading us. If it's not there and you're headed in that direction, praise God, keep going. If if you're not there because you're busy trying to climb a ladder of success and status, then what he's saying is turn around. You haven't involved him in, in the conversation. Here's what I also love about Jesus. Here's what he does that we don't do. We tend to encourage people towards faithfulness by discouraging them with the things that they've done wrong. Jesus not only provides instruction on how they're to lead and to serve, a picture of what it looks like, but look, he gives them an incentive. Verse 28 starts off and says this, You are those who stood by me in my trials. We make a whole bunch about how the disciples have failed him And they will. But one thing that he says himself was, for three years we've been at this. It hasn't been easy. And he encourages them by the fact that they've been with him. He knows that in the toughest trial that he faces, they're not going to be with him. But what he tells them is, y'all have been with me. When people tried to kill me, when my family was calling me crazy because I said I was the son of God. When people were trying to stone us, there was a group of folks that had a genuine loyalty to Jesus. And even though it was imperfect, he celebrated it and reaffirmed it in them. You and I would do well to learn to do the same thing. People's obedience, 
their loyalty is going to be imperfect. But one of the best uh, quotes that I've heard from a mentor that I had is, one of the best things that you can do is praise what you want to see more of. And so Christ tells him, look, y'all have stood by me in my trials. And look, look, look what he says here. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That seems kind of confusing. What does he mean by judging? We thought that God's the, the only judge. Some scholars believe this is a reference to 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about one day we're going to be with God and we're going to rule and reign and our judgment is not absolute, but we're going to be with him affirming his judgment. What I don't want to do is get lost in the weeds here. What I want to do is help you see what he's trying to say. As Jesus talks uh, about his death in the Gospels, he's going to talk about his death But do you know what he's always going to tag on the end? His resurrection. He's going to talk about the cross, but he's going to remind us that the point is a kingdom. You and I have to remember that, yes, we serve a savior that was crucified, but he was crucified past tense and he is risen. He reigns. He's going to bring a kingdom. Although we do have to take the low road right now, we won't always be low. Our first steps towards faithfulness, towards greatness, are no indication of our final destiny. That one day, you and I, though we take so many L's here in this world because of the way that we serve and the way that we give up and the way that we don't fight for our vindication or honor or respect, that is not the end of the story. And Jesus reminds them that this thing is going somewhere. I think what he's trying to help us see in all of this is that our rise to, to greatness is not about climbing a ladder of status. Our rise of greatness is digging a ditch of service. The first steps towards greatness move downhill through the valley of humility. We like to think of greatness as, all right, I'm going to start here, and then I'm going to build here, and then I'm going to rise to the top. And Jesus says that's how the world does it because they think that at the top they'll be served. But he's saying true greatness begins not with status, but with service. And he makes his point, but then he continues to drive his point home. Jesus doesn't just want to correct their perspective. Jesus wants to cement this point. So look at what he does. He helps Peter take those first steps. Verse 31. Simon, Simon. Notice, as he's getting ready to go into this, he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him by his old name. Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, not because of what he was, but what he would be. Peter means rock. Jesus says that one day Peter will be this rock. He'll have this firmness. 
but he gives him these words of comfort, and it comes in an unlikely package. Simon, Simon, look, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Christ does three things here. As he helps Peter take these first steps towards humility, the first thing that he does is he reminds him of his danger. And this is a warning that you and I need to take. We live as if the world that we see is all that there is. Or the world that we see is the world that's most real. We live as if our biggest problems are our most visible problems. And Jesus helps him see, no, 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 no. Listen, y'all, we live in a very spiritual world with a spiritual enemy that has been after the glory of God from the start. We live in a spiritual world from an anim- with an, an, an enemy who from the beginning of creation of this world is after diminishing God's glory by the way that you and I treat God or trying to. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, a foretelling of the fact that he'll fall. Yo, Satan has asked to, to sift you like wheat. You're, you're outmatched. This danger is too much for you. We read Job. And do you know what takes place in Job that's odd? We think of the story of Job as God's up there just chilling. Satan comes up and says, yo, I want to get Job. But that's not how things go. God's up there. They all come. Who initiates the conversation? God. Who brings up Job first? God. And what does God talk about Job? He talks about his uh, 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 parent greatness. Look at this. Look at how faithful he is. And do you know what Satan says? Satan says, well, God, the only reason why Job serves you is because when his praises go up, blessings come down. And if you take away the blessings that come down, do you know what's not going to go up? Praises. So Satan, in front of all the hosts of heaven, Heaven says, God, the only reason why people love you is because you give them good stuff. He charges God with being guilty of the prosperity gospel. And God charged in front of all the hosts of heaven. Do you know what he does? He permits Satan to shake Job violently. And I loved what Jess brought out. That section was in real time. He loses everything in the amount of time it took Jessica to read that passage. And what he's telling Peter is, listen, Satan wants to do the exact same thing with you. And I want all of y'all to know here Peter is not exempt. Satan wants to do all of that with us. But then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What Jesus prays is not that Peter won't deny him. Because if that's what he means by, I pray that your faith won't fail, then Jesus' prayer didn't work. What he meant is not that Peter, not, not that his prayer would prevent Peter from falling, but even after he fell, that he knows that God would be right back there to pick him up. And then he says, and then after all of this, Peter, I've got something for you to do. Strengthen your brothers. Serve them. Once you're brought low, once you're far, after that, after you've descended down the hill towards humility, this is what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen your brothers, not from a mountaintop, but from a valley. Not from above telling people that they should be like you, but from rock bottom. Saying, I sank, I hit the ocean floor, and I hit a rock, and let me tell you, this rock is a better foundation than all the sands that we were building stuff on. The rise to greatness begins with a downhill journey towards humility. Jesus is helping Peter to take those first steps. He gives him an invitation to be weak, but Peter refuses to return the RSVP. In 33, he says this, Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's overconfident, as we all are. He continues to want to prove his worth by his achievements and status, wanting to prove his greatness by what he can do. And Peter does two things. He underestimates Satan's hatred of him and intelligence of him. And he overestimates his strength to withstand temptation. Listen, overconfidence is not a ladder that puts you on top of a mountain. Overconfidence is a ladder that takes you to a diving board to a deep pool with no water. It doesn't end well. Peter is climbing saying, I've got this. Not realizing that he's in a spiritual battle. Let let me just say this right quick. Do you know Satan is subtle and he is very crafty. He's more intelligent than all of us in here put together. However, Satan knows that we are not strong enough in our own, not just to withstand the subtle temptations, Do you realize that you aren't strong enough to withstand even the most simple and straightforward temptation? We just don't have it. It doesn't get more plain than Adam and Eve. God says, don't eat from this tree and you'll die. Satan says, eat from it, you're not really going to die. And we can think about our own lives. The most straightforward temptation 
the most in your face. I know this is wrong. I know it's not going to end well with that guy, with that girl, with that money, with that job, with that argument. It's in your face. I know this is wrong. I know it won't end well. But I think I'm going to try it out. And Jesus predicts and tells him that he'll fall. And when Peter talks about his resolve, Jesus helps him see that his resolve is worthless. Look here at the end. Verse 34. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. What he says is prison and death. Peter. You're not going to make it 12 hours before three times somebody asks, do you know me? And you'll say, no. Listen, Jesus is not trying to condemn Peter. What he is trying to do is help him along and remind him that Jesus wants him to strengthen his brothers, not from the top, but from the, the bottom. He's trying to help Peter know that the gauge that he looks at for the resolve that he has is broken. My first car was a 1993 Ford Aerostar. Uh, it was this big van that my mom used to drive. I got it when I was 16. It was my first car. Uh, got to a point in time where my gas gauge was broken. Um, but it was broken on full. So at any time I drove and I looked down, it said I was full. And at first, I don't know, at 16 years old, I, I, I thought I was winning. Like, man, I'm driving around all this time and it's still full. Not knowing that though it said full, I didn't have the gas to get where I thought that I did. I want us to know when it comes to trusting ourselves, you don't have the gas to get to where you think that you can go. Our resolve gauge is broken. We tend to think that we're stronger than we are. We make so much of our past uh, 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 achievements. We think too much of them and think that somehow they qualify us to serve God. I've been pure. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I haven't cheated on my taxes. I've been a good friend. I have all this track record. So of course I'm going to end up and just kind of ride this 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 thing to the mountaintop. And Jesus helps him see your gauge is broken. We overestimate our ability to succeed. And when that takes place, do you know what we do when we hear words like this, that we will fail? We tend to think that the failure, we tend to think that when Christ forces humility on us and we get to a place where we said, I thought I would never do that. I thought I would never cross that line. That we think that somehow now that disqualifies us. And I think these words are words of comfort because Jesus gives them the promise that they will reign with him before he predicts their present weakness so that he can help them see their performance is not going to be the thing that gets them his promises. He does have 
an enemy that he's outmatched with, that has plans for Peter. But Jesus is saying that his prayers are greater than Satan's plans. He's saying, while we all may have a clue about what we have done, none of us know precisely what we are capable of doing. And none of us know the the horrendous things that we will do in the future. But Jesus is saying his promises are not based on your future performance. Now hear this. What that does not mean is that Jesus doesn't care about performance. Jesus absolutely cares. But what he's saying is that it doesn't determine your destiny in this. Jesus cares so much, God cares so much about how you and I live, how you and I serve, and what it says about his glory or the lack thereof, that for that very sin, God has to punish sin, has to in the sense of this is God's means of protecting his holiness and showing creation that he is a worthy God. If he doesn't, It says that he's unjust and unfaithful. We live in a world that's crying out at people that have power to stop wrong, not stopping wrong, and how they're complicit in it. But yet we act like it's something wrong for God to do the same thing. Where do you think our world gets it from? Where do you think we get this cry of justice from? It's from this great God. And look at how just he is and look at how much love that he has. God cares about performance. He cares uh, about this so much that even when this sin is laid on his perfect son, he's not going to be partial and let him off the hook. Romans 8.32 says this, He did not even spare his own son but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Make no mistake, Peter is going to sink low. Peter is going to be depressed at just how far he's fallen, just how, fall, just how short he's fallen of the resolve that he has. But do you know what Peter's going to find at the bottom? He's going to find a perfect Savior who did more than just stoop to serve him at dinner. But he stooped low all the way down to death. And not just death, but the most humiliating death. And he didn't stoop down that low reluctantly with people Twisting his arms. He didn't stoop down that low. Being surprised. He did it willingly. Joyfully. Expectantly. Eagerly. Jesus died for our sins. So that we could live eternally with God. God cares about performance. What a joy it is that you and I can cry. And say God don't look to my performance. Look to Jesus's. This is the message of the gospel that when you and I hit rock bottom, it's that God was pushing us there so that we would realize how faulty a foundation it is to build greatness on so many other things. And so, 
when you find yourselves in a place where your resolve to be faithful to Christ, your plans for greatness, when your hopes come crashing down, um, don't be so quick to mourn the loss of what you put your hope in. Be quick to evaluate what it is that I put my hope in and is it worthy of being mourned? And here's what I mean by that. As a result of your failure, have you lost the respect of people that you were trying to impress? Maybe that's a good thing. You may not gain their respect, but one thing that you will gain is sympathy for people at the bottom who need to be reminded that we serve a God that submerges. Our prayers don't have to soar. God submerges. Have you lost respect for yourself? Being surprised at the things that you've done or would do or think about doing. Maybe that's not something to mourn, but something to thank God for. Maybe he's using that to remove the overconfidence that would lead to your eventual and eternal downfall. Jesus helps us not to think too much about ourselves based on the past things that we've done. Because our track record doesn't qualify to serve him. Jesus also helps us not to think too little of ourselves based on our present failures. Because often our present failures don't disqualify us from serving him but they uniquely equip us to serve him in a better way. J.I. Packer says this, this is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. If you feel like you're at the bottom and your hopes have come crashing down, If you have Jesus, my one encouragement is lift up your head. Look to Jesus. Be reminded that we do not have a dead Savior. He is risen. And as we look to the risen Lord, we take our eyes off of ourselves. And we are reminded that although humility and service are the first steps towards greatness, being at the bottom is not our final destiny. We will be raised one day with Christ. Lift up your head and look to people who have their heads hung low because they've done what they thought they would never do and encourage them. And realize that our first steps towards greatness, though they go downhill through the valley of humility, we are walking in the footprints of somebody who has already gone that path 
and come out the other side victorious. I'm going to read this last quote from Charles Spurgeon. And he says this. Serve God with all your might while the candle is burning. And then when it goes out for a season, you will have less to regret. Be content to be nothing for that is what you are. When your emptiness is painfully forced upon your consciousness, chide yourself or rebuke yourself. Did you ever dreamed of being full? Did you ever dreamed of being great? Except in the Lord. He goes on to say, whenever God means to make a man great, he breaks him into pieces first. If you are broken, we have a savior who does a great job of picking up the pieces. Let's cry out to him. Father, once again, we come to you. uh, And we are grateful that you are such a gracious savior. Thank you for giving us the freedom to be who we are. Father, who would have thought that there would be such comfort in knowing that apart from you, Father, there is no greatness, there is no comfort, there is no security. We are completely and utterly dependent, and that's good news because you are completely and utterly dependable. Help us to depend on you, Father. Help us to show our dependence in the way that we look for opportunities to serve our brothers and sisters. It's in Jesus' name we pray.